HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My name is Sarah Kim, and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. This week on Meet and 3, we're talking about the United States' biggest crop. It's corn. They will always tell you that corn is like their family. Corn is their family. You treat corn like you would treat your family. These subsidy programs are supposed to be for really dealing with unexpected things that happen to farmers. Although in practice, a lot of times farmers are actually paid farm subsidies for things that we can control and do expect. There's this constant warfare going on between the oil industry and the grain industry. Tune in to Meet and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Lisa Held, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. Last spring, when things were changing minute by minute and we had no idea what was ahead, I started to invite farmers and others working in the food system to come on the show to talk about how their farms and businesses were being affected by the pandemic. At that time, grocery stores were struggling to keep shelves stocked and people were afraid. Many turned to small farms in their region for the first time to stock their freezers with meat or to sign up for a community-supported agriculture membership for fresh produce. So one thing many growers were telling me on this show was that they were actually seeing an increase in demand. Of course, they had to scramble to meet it and make all kinds of changes, in many cases moving sales online, offering home delivery, trying to keep employees safe. But... Many ended up selling more food in 2020 than ever before. And since then, during my reporting for Civil Eats and other publications, I've talked to farmers and experts all over the country who have experienced and witnessed this phenomenon. But what now? As more people are vaccinated and we prepare for the post-COVID-19 era, whatever that means, farmers are wondering if new customers will stick with them and whether upgrades they've made will lead to future success or if they'll be left in the lurch when people return to old habits. Today's guest, 
Becky Fulham, is here to talk about this issue through the lens of her own experiences at Old Ford Farm, a diversified family farm in New Paltz, New York, that she runs with her husband, Joe. Becky, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. So I am very excited to talk to you about all these important farm and food issues that I was just talking about. We're going to get into that. Um, But first, we have to get out of the way the fact that you're not really a typical guest. (laughs) Um, (laughs) This feels a little surreal to me. Um, We're going to have to explain our history to listeners, I think, in order for us to be totally honest. So how old do you think we were when we met? Um, well, I moved to Warwick when I was six years old, and so I'm. I think that um, you you were a grade ahead of me in school, so probably um, probably right around then, six or seven. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's crazy! I couldn't remember when you came to St. Stephen's. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> crazy. So right, so we went to the same small Catholic school. Our right. parents were really close friends. Um, your mom was my guitar teacher, also right. my math teacher at one point. <laughs> yeah, we go <laughs> and way then, back. <laughs> right? And then you and I were really close friends for many years. Yes. And, you know, I was thinking about this before this recording, and I was trying to remember, like, our friendship, what, you know, like, our middle school selves, and all I could think about was giggling. Like, I feel like you and I just <laughs> <Yes>. giggled <laughs> Just like Is that. that- yeah, it's like we're still doing it, I guess. But Lisa, what I found out after all these years that you are, are you know, in that we're in the same, you know, food and agriculture world, and I found right. out you had a podcast and, and I started listening to it, it was that laugh <laughs> that I remembered. <laughs> I was like, yep, that's her. <laughs> oh, my gosh, that's so funny. Yes. Okay, well, I guess I'm still that still got that that person inside of me somewhere. Yes, yes. <laughs> um. Okay, so uh, we got that out of the way. But but actually, it's relevant to this conversation because we grew up in Warwick, right? A small kind of rural town. It's a little less rural now. But neither of our families were in agriculture, but farming was definitely a huge presence in the town. Um, right. And, you know, I'm curious how you got into it. Do you, do you think growing up in Warwick influenced you at all or were you interested in it at all then? Not, not at all. Then, yeah, it's it's so interesting. After the fact, um, you know, after going to college and becoming interested um, in agriculture at that point, um, kind of seeing Warwick with new eyes um, and noticing all the agriculture um, around that that I was not attuned to back then. Um, but for me, my um, my initial interest was in nutrition, um, which came mm. from my, um, you know, I was involved in cross country and track in high right. school. And that's what, you know, initially made me interested in health and nutrition. So I always had that as an interest. And I was always interested in social justice issues and environmental issues. And so going into college, I had sort of all um, all three of those things that I was interested in and I wanted to plug into a career and I had no idea how. Mm. And I kind of bounced around majors and it was through um, my sophomore year, I believe I became involved in a community garden um, mm. on campus. And that um, through my involvement there, I was just introduced to this concept of sustainable agriculture, um, of a way of that there is this way of growing food 
that um, is better for the environment, is better for local economies and produces a better product. Um, and so it's sort of wrapped together all of those interests of mine. Mm. And so that's how I decided, you know, this is in one way or another going to be, you know, what I want to um, explore in a career. Um, and then it wasn't until um, the summer before my senior year of college that I did, I actually worked on a farm. Mm. Um, and, and I just totally fell in love with the work. Um, so yeah, that's what brought me to farming. Right. And did you have any like formal agricultural training or did you just learn from experience? Yeah, mostly from experience. So I did that one internship. So that was just a three month internship on a diversified farm outside of Troy, New York. Um, So mostly vegetable focus. My job was mostly vegetable focused. And then after graduating college, I did a full season on a farm in New Paltz, again, mostly working with vegetables. So that was it in terms of training. Um, And then a, a key piece was my um, then boyfriend, now husband Joe, who mm. he hasn't worked a far- on a farm a day in his life, but he just has a lot of um, technical knowledge and skills. Um, mm. You know, he could take apart any motor and, and you know, he knows how everything works. So um, he was going to school for mechanical engineering mm-hmm. and had realized kind of early on in the, his college years that a traditional career in engineering was not going to be a great fit for him. So he was actually looking into teaching, getting a degree in teaching to become a high school math or physics teacher. Um, But as I was developing this interest in farming, um, and he came to visit me on the farm outside of Troy, where I, um, I was apprenticing, for him, he started realizing that um, small scale, sustainable farming is actually a way for him to put his skills and interests and passions into um, a more um, into a more fulfilling um, career. Mm. So that was how um, so that that was his background. So I had a little bit of like on the ground experience. um, And he just had a lot of skills already that are so important to farming. Um, that I right. certainly don't have. <laughs> um, so the combination, so, you know, and but it was hard. You know, the first few years, we, we jumped right into starting our own operation. And um, I would say, you know, with most, most livestock, um, it was, we were able to figure it out pretty quickly. It, you know, livestock are just a little bit more simple. A, a, this is surprising to a lot of people, but we found the, the livestock end of it was a little more simple than than growing crops. Huh, um, interesting. Yeah, and and if we felt like it took a good four years um, before we really felt that the, the vegetable operation was kind of smooth sailing. Um, and, the, mm. and the dairy was, was also, you know, t- took a long time because um, the dairy is year round and um, you're not just caring for the animals, you're, you know, you're, you're sort of involved in in milking them twice a day, which adds a lot of other dimensions. Um, So those two things were were the most challenging. But um, yeah, we um, it it was through a lot of very generous um, mentors, um, just simple online research um, and and trial and error that we got to where we are. Wow, it's incredible. Um, and that is really interesting that you found the livestock easier. I think that is more intimidating for a lot of people who don't yeah, come from yeah, farming yeah, backgrounds. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this is audio, this is a podcast, so we can't see the farm, but can you um, paint us a little bit of a picture of what it looks like today? What are you growing and, and sort of like what the operation looks like? 
Yeah. So, um, so we produce dairy, uh, meat, eggs, and vegetables. Well, um, up until this year, we did end up dropping our vegetable operation. You know, hopefully temporarily, um, starting this year. Um, from the dairy, we produce raw milk. So in New York State, in order to sell raw milk, um, you have to have a license to do so, and it has to be sold uh, direct to the end user on the farm. So by necessity, we have um, an on-farm store. It just operates on the honor system. It's open 24-7, so people can just come. Um, and so our milk is there. Our eggs, chicken, pork, beef, and vegetables um, can all be accessed through the farm store. And we also have um, a lot of other products from other local farms as well. So it's a pre- oh, wow. pretty you know diverse um, array of, of items there. Um, and in, in addition to the farm store, we when we had veggies, we did a veggie CSA. We also do um, turkeys for Thanksgiving that are all just pre-ordered. Um, when we have extra milk, the milk gets sold uh, wholesale to a cheesemaker. Mm. And we do a little bit of um, wholesale eggs to other local veggie CSAs. But the vast majority of our products are just sold right there in the farm store. Okay. Um, so yeah, that's that's a little uh, snapshot of just what we produce and and how it gets moved. Yeah, it's a lot. You're doing doing a lot of a lot yeah. of different things. <laughs> um, so so let's talk about um, the pandemic. So you know, I guess we're we're in March actually right now. Yeah. So so March of of 2020, a year ago. Um, tell me about like that first week when things started to shut down. Um, do you remember like that moment and what you were thinking in terms of like, Oh my gosh, what do we need to do to adjust, um, on the farm? Yeah. So the, if it, if it was, is to be condensed down to a moment, I remember on the Friday, so I believe it was March 13th. Mm -hmm. Um, so every day my, my, one of my jobs on the farm is just restocking the farm store and, you know, every morning, I go and I, you know, whatever needs to be replenished, um, I do that. Um, And, you know, it's usually, you know, a handful of items. It it takes me 20 minutes on a daily basis to to just simply restock. Um, And so when I leave um, to go home midday, you know, everything is everything is full. All the freezers and refrigerators are full. And so that Friday, I returned to the farm in the afternoon and I just took a picture. I was so blown away that one of we have two meat freezers um, and one of them was just completely empty. Oh, my God. Um, so I took a picture and texted it to my family. I was like, coincidence? I, I don't think so. <laughs> um, wow. So that's when I realized. Uh, and then, yeah, it kind of continued that way for the weekend. And at first, our assumption was, oh, the we're not getting any extra sales. This is just, you know, people are anticipating staying yeah. home. Exactly. Mm-hmm. We're just getting the, a month's worth of sales all, you know, in one week. Right. Um, but that was not the case. Um, hmm. You know, it was, it only went up from there that weekend. Oh. Um, and so, you know, it it's kind of hard to measure because there's so many different items and, and certain things um, did sell out. But we're estimating somewhere between a doubling and tripling of sales um, for the that initial like lockdown period. So in, um, for second half of March, April, and May, um, yeah, yeah. So yeah. It, it totally changed, um, you know, our our day to day life. I was spending um, 
over an hour <laughs> on restocking every day, um, over an hour every day on just processing sales, um, you know, the, the accounting end of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, fortunately, we had plenty of milk because that, that's the one item we can't buy in because um, mm. it has to come from our farm. So we had plenty of milk because at the time um, we were selling a, a large portion to the cheesemaker that we work with. So all of that milk that would have gone to him was all going, you know, retail. So we were able to stay consistent on milk. Um, and as we got low on other items, we were able to supplement from other local farms. Um, so yeah, it was it was a lot of work, just that coordination, that outreach um, to have consistency, the, you know, the stocking uh, and the accounting, it, it really, you know, kind of changed our day-to-day life. Yeah. What about the, the vegetable CSA at that point? Had you already... Um... Done, gone through getting signups at, or or was that had that started yet yeah at that point we were probably already about three quarters full which which is typical for that time of year and it in the past we usually did sell out and okay. some years we would have a, a a handful of people on a waiting list um but that year you know we were sold out by april and had a much longer waiting list so that saw an increase as well wow so as you're doing, you know, as you're seeing all this increased demand, you mentioned obviously just more time spent on like accounting, um, the labor involved. Were there any other big challenges? Like what what changed in terms of did you have to make any big changes to production? Um, at that point, we didn't have a lot of options um, right. <laughs> because things are kind of set. Um, the only thing we were able to adjust was um, the laying hens. Um, we buy each year we get a new flock of laying hens in the spring um, and we were able to and we buy them as pullets. So chickens that are already five months old, ready to lay eggs. Um, we were able to finagle a little bit um, more from the person we were buying them from. Um, and then we we did have capacity to raise a few more meat chickens. Mm. Um, but other than that, um, you know, we you know, we just didn't have, um, you right. know, the, the land we're growing vegetables on that's, you know, already maxed yeah. out. So, um, yeah, there wasn't a ton that we could do in terms of production. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. Um, all right, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, we'll be right back after this word from a sponsor. My name is Sarah Kim and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Wisconsin cheese has proven time and time again to be a delicious expression of craft, hard work, and tradition. As a Cheeselandian, I'm able to share a Gouda experience with fellow cheese and food lovers nationwide, as well as connect with cheese producers and cheesemongers, taking my love of cheese to another level. I invite you to join Cheeselandia because during these difficult times, it has been even more important to take it easy and get cheesy. The Cheeselandia community and events have been the glue helping to keep us together and connected, and I would love it if you would join me. And let's face it, if you hear the word cheese and get a little hungry, then you've found a place you can call home. To find out more about Cheeselandia, go to Cheeselandia.com. All right, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. 
I am talking to Becky Fulham today. She's a farmer and co-owner of Old Ford Farm in New Paltz, New York. And we've been talking about how the farm was affected by the pandemic throughout 2020. Um, And I think we're kind of up until now, right? Like, so we talked about the before. Now we're kind of going into the next season. Um, So... After all this increased demand and and everything you experienced, how did you think differently about this season? So I I assume the winter is when you're planning, right? And figuring Mm -hmm. out like, what are are we going to do this coming year? Um, What, what, if anything, are you doing differently? How are you planning? Um, Yeah, I mean, it's it's a big, um, it's a big question mark. We just, we just don't know what is going to happen. Um, and again, there there's not a lot of wiggle room um, just because of our setup and infrastructure. Um, you know, we can't make massive changes. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, fortunately, when it comes to meat, um, you know, those products are frozen. And so, you know, if we do end up overproducing this year, we can just adjust next year. Um mm. And with dairy, you just have very little control um, of production because it just depends on when cows give birth. Um, and obviously that has to be, you know, taken care of um, far in advance. So, um, yeah, there there wasn't a lot that we could really change anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, we we don't know. Um, we, we just simply don't know what this year um, is going to bring. Do you mentioned that you're not doing the vegetable CSA? Tell me about that. What what yeah. made you make that decision? Yeah, that was that was not related to COVID. That was sort of a long time uh-huh. coming. Um, basically, one of the largest challenges that we face in farming is uh, lack of access to sufficient land, mm-hmm. um, and so you know, as the farm has grown, um, we we started out on a piece of leased land and it did become clear um, pretty quickly to us. You know, we started the farm right out of college. We didn't have a business plan. We didn't, there was nothing. um, We didn't know what the business was going to look like, Mm -hmm. but as it started evolving and we realized what the demand was going to be and what our scale was going to be um, the, the land that we were leasing, you know, it was clear it was not a good fit at all. Mm -hmm. Um, so we have, you know, for basically our whole farming careers, we've been farming and also looking for mm. other land. Um, but in the meantime, you know, you know, we still have not found, you know, what we feel is our ultimate permanent home. And as um, needs arise on the current farm, um it's always this really difficult dilemma for us, um, you know, as we need to develop systems and infrastructure to right. run the current farm properly. It's a big question of what do we invest in this place that we do not own and that we do not plan to be in the long term. Yeah. So the way we've addressed that up until now is we have a lot, we call it stopgap infrastructure. So we have a lot of very temporary um, creative um, infrastructure. and But it doesn't, you know, one, that sort of infrastructure is just more prone to, to breaking down and not working and not being efficient, not being smooth. 
Um, and then as, you know, as scales change and, and things change and new needs arise, it's just this, this constant dilemma. Do we deal with the old system and all the frustrations? Do we right. put a little bit of money in to make it a little bit better? Or do we like invest like what we, you know, ultimately yeah. want? And then maybe next year we move. Right. <laughs> and all that and then you lose that. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. So basically, the um, all of this is to say, um, over the years, as the farm has grown, um, and we are still looking for land, which which is a you know a big time and energy drain, um, and we continue to run into infrastructure problems. Um, it, it's there's just not enough hours in the day. Um, <laughs> it, it, it we just were not able to continue to support um, the diverse the diversity that we yeah. love. And I mean, it was it was such a hard decision. It was so hard to let that go. You yeah. know, we really became very proud of of the vegetable operation that we had developed. But um, you know, f- forget sleep, forget work life balance. <laughs> like we were starting to put like important farm needs, you know, on the back burner. And so right. it just became clear that this this cannot continue. Um, so our, our options were to either get rid of um, the dairy operation or the vegetable operation, because those are the largest, um, you know, those kind of take Components. the most of us in terms mm-hmm. of time and management. So, um, yeah, okay. we decided to go with the vegetables um, because it's, if we decide we made a mistake, that's the easiest to kind of get back right away. Whereas, you know, we've, we have this beautiful herd of, of cows and, you know, that would be hard yeah. to, to replace, to get back. So. Right. I, I feel like it's also, it, I mean, to me, it seems more unique, like as a way to differentiate yourselves as a source of raw milk. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Right? That was because, a big part of the decision as well. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, amazing vegetable operations um, in mm-hmm. the area. There's, there's really no other raw milk, um, places to buy raw milk uh, close by. So that was a big part of it too. Yeah. yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. So, you know, as we're thinking about this question of, you know, will the demand continue and these sort of new customers that came to you last year, are they going to continue to come to your farm and other farms? Um, have you been able to talk to any of the people that buy from you? Like, have you been in touch with any of the newer buyers? I'm curious, like what you're hearing from people and if you are hearing it all that people are like, oh, my God, I didn't I never knew that, you know, I had this amazing source of raw milk right here or yeah. vegetable, you know, and, and just like what what are you hearing, if anything? Yeah, I, I mean, I really I'm so curious about um, people's motivations um, and their thoughts. I wish I was able to in a more formal way kind of do do a survey. But yeah. so what I noticed um I don't know how much of the increased sales was from new faces. Huh. I think, um, and again, I don't have numbers, but my sense just from looking at sales logs is that um, these are all customers who, you know, we've been on their radar. They come, you know, once in a while or um, it, it was basically everyone we've ever sold to, if they come to us just for milk suddenly they were buying everything from us. Mm. If they came once a month, now they're coming once a week. So I think it was, uh, that was most of what the increase was from. Increase um, in volume, kind of. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. from the, from the old, from older customers. Um, I haven't really spoken to um, any new 
completely new customers. Um, There was some, um, actually, um, a lot of people from New York City have homes up in the area. So that was another part of it, too. Whereas, you know, maybe they used to live up here a couple weekends a year Mm. or a week in the summer, and now they're up here. And so, you know, we were getting all that as well. Uh, But we certainly did hear, you know, appreciation um, from everybody, you know, having this resource, having a way to you know, buy food in a safe way and, and high quality food. Um, and, you know, we were really more consistent than than grocery stores were, at least in the beginning. Um, so, yeah, I definitely tried to kind of slip in there like, don't forget us <laughs> after the <laughs> pandemic is over. Um, right. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what? So I want to ask you sort of why, like, why shouldn't people forget about these farms that they are maybe buying more from during the pandemic, maybe suddenly, you know, they're home and they decided to cook more and, and their habits might, might change. But, but what is the value? Like, why do you think people should support small farms like yours over the long term, not just in a crisis? Well, (laughs) (laughs) um, so I think I've got two reasons that I want to highlight. So one is that your farmers need you. Um, You know, farming is a job where there's no shortage of challenges. Um, And a lot of these challenges um, are ones that consumers can't really do anything about. Like, you know, our land access challenge is, um, you know, no one is going to kind of turn that around. Um, you know, that's a more systemic, uh, complicated thing. Policymakers um, have to change. <laughs> right, yeah. right, right. It's, it takes a lot. Yeah. Um, and in 2020, um, not just us, but many, many small farms, the challenge of marketing and of insufficient sales was completely eliminated. Um, and this, I, I can't speak for the other farms, but I can say for us, um, I really can't overstate what a game changer this was. Mm. Um, it, it gave us a greater peace of mind knowing that, you know, all this food that we were working hard to produce um, was going to be sold and was, you know, going to be consumed and appreciated. Um, and it allowed us to divert um, our time and energy toward more important things. Um, and that um, it was just absolutely huge. So, you know, just to those who who care about the existence of small, sustainability-minded farms in your community, um, I just want to send the message that your support is important. Um, The way you bought food in 2020 has made a difference, and we need you to continue. And not not just for Thanksgiving dinner, not just, you know, an occasional luxury, um, but we need you to come, not just uh, during lockdowns. Right. Um, you know, we need you to come week after week um, to buy your groceries from us. So, so that's one reason. Um, and the second reason, kind of more big picture. Um, so, I'd like to just bring up, you know, climate change, and um, you know, the scientific community is certainly in agreement that we, as humanity, face is we're at this fork in the road. Absolutely. Where we can either go, you know, make massive changes to our lifestyles and um, our economy, or we can face the um, some serious consequences from climate change, and uh, and which some people are already experiencing. Um, but if we go for the former path um, of great change and reducing our dependencies on fossil fuels, um, you know, there's a lot of innovation um, and technology needed to 
kind of make those changes without serious hardship. Mm-hmm. And, you know, buying food, if you live in an area where you can get your food, um, you know, from your local region, to me, it just seems like the lowest of the low hanging fruit, you know, mm-hmm. no major you know, technological advance or, um, you know, innovation is is needed for that. Um, mm-hmm. and, and of course, this, it, it does require a big change, but in our kitchens, um, it, it requires people to um, think about and eat a seasonal diet. And I know in my conversations um, with consumers, that, that's hard, you know, that that's a sacrifice. Um, you know, certainly it's easy in, in August to eat seasonally, but um, of course, for many months of the year, we do have to give up um, some some of the fresh vegetables and other foods that we love. Um, but I would just kind of like to throw out there, like, what the alternatives are. And if, right. if we do kind of go, you know, the route of um, making, you know, substantial change to our economy so that we can avoid the worst of climate change, you know, eating seasonally is going to be kind of the easiest thing out there. Um, and then I, I guess at this, I also want to acknowledge that, um, you know, not everybody has this option um, to, to get course. the bulk of their diet from local food, um, you know, either because they don't have access or they can't afford it. Um, that's a big problem, um, just to make an understatement. Um, and, you know, where I am in the Hudson Valley, there, there's a lot of um, really creative initiatives to address that problem. That's not what I'm talking about here. I, I'm sort of just addressing, you know, those who do have the access and the resources. Mm-hmm. Um, I would just, yeah, like to challenge you to think about um, the importance um, of eating locally, um, you know, getting the, the bulk of your groceries um, from local producers, um, you know, for, for your farmer's sake, for the world's sake. And, th- you know, those are two altruistic reasons I gave. But, you know, there's also a lot of benefit <laughs> to you as well <laughs> as a consumer. Definitely. Um, you know, getting, you know, some really fresh and, and high quality foods um, and, you know, having that connection to the people, the land, the animals that produce your food um, is also, you know, a benefit a lot of people appreciate. And health. I mean, you got into this because of nutrition, right? For sure. And, yeah. Um, I mean, that's that's a huge, a huge benefit. Um, there's so many, so many things I want to say about all the things that you just said, but <laughs> I don't even know where to start. Well, what one thing I, what, that I just wanted to to say, and you know, you mentioned this idea that you know you're not talking when you say like it's a it's a choice that that people can make. And you're not talking about, you know, we we know that equity is a major problem and that for a lot of people, this isn't a choice. And um, but, you know, people ask me that question all the time. Isn't it? Well, isn't, you know, buying local food elitist or and I always come back to this idea that it, if you if you care about equity and you care about everybody having access to this kind of food, if you have the resources, then it's even more on you to, you Absolutely. know, to to be the one to actually spend the spend a little bit more and start to shift things. Because if if you step up and you know spend your dollars differently, then you know there's a much big better chance that things will start to shift, and there yeah. will be more of a chance that you know we can um, build these systems and create lots of opportunities for equity and, um, solve the bigger economic problems, which are really at the base of why people can't afford 
food, right? Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, and, you know, the notion that, you know, local sustainably produced food is elitist, it... It's so funny to me because, you know, since the beginning of agriculture, you know, for the vast majority of our history, this was this was just food. This is just what people (laughs) ate. You know, there's nothing special about, you know, whole foods, you know, milk, meat, eggs, plants that we eat. Um, It's that we're in this context now of mass produced and processed foods that Mm -hmm. that what was just simple, normal food, you know, for most people humans is yeah. now something special but that i mean it's kind of like we we we, sh- we should kind of look at industrial produced food in As, in, the, right. in that kind of light that it's something odd and different um you know so yeah, yeah. well i think about that all the time too i mean you knew my mom becky and one thing you know one thing i remember for, as a kid was like we didn't you know especially when i was really little and we really didn't have any money, we didn't buy processed foods, packaged foods because they were expensive. Like my my yeah. mom was like, it costs more money. You know, we're yeah. never gonna buy like fruit roll ups. You're gonna eat an apple <laughs> because it's cheap. Because <laughs> you know, like, you know yes. like, go buy a big thing of yeah. of yeah. rice and cook it, and it'll last five days rather than you know right. Right. buying a, a hamburger, or a Burger King. Like that. Yeah. That's, yeah. Absolutely. It, you know, pound or whatever calorie by calorie, it's it's more expensive, but. But, you know, that that's a whole other conversation because that food has become sure. so cheap for, for many other reasons. Um, yeah. But <laughs> um, anyway, um, well, thank you, Becky, so much for, for coming on the show um, and telling us all about your farm and um, this crazy year we've lived through. Um, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I really enjoyed it, Lisa. All right, and thank you all so much for listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. Until next time, this is Lisa Held. The Farm Report is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.